You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's been driving all night, his hands wet on the wheel. It's <laughs> Jeff McLarge Huge. I've got the signal coming down from above. Yes, as they say. Radar love. Radar love. Radar love puns. Yeah. Yes, yes. How you doing? I'm I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, man. It's it's been a long week. Oh uh, yeah. Well, that's that's what these shows are for. So. Uh, give everybody a little uh, a little kick in the pants and mm-hmm. say, hey, the news isn't so bad. We've had some good stuff happen. Maybe it wasn't this week, but <laughs> in the past. So I think I mentioned this. I know I've mentioned this a couple. You know, Over the past year, I've been doing this internet challenge because apparently I'm a 14 or 15-year-old girl. Uh, uh, but the challenge is to listen to an album a day every day, and every day has its own category. And it's been awesome. I, I really hope that there's a list for next year because I want to keep doing this. What was the, What's the record that you had to listen to this time? This today? Um, so, uh, well, oh, today. All right. I was going to say something you know, over the past week. But today I had to um, – the category, it was a really wide brush. Okay. It was industrial music. Nice. And I have this guy that I work with. He's about 10 years older than me. You know, he's pretty much painted himself into a corner with his music. You know, as you get older, you there's like five bands that you listen to. And then the next year, there's four, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So whenever I tell him, you know, some of the categories that I have to listen to, he goes, oh, I wouldn't be able to listen to that. I was like, you force yourself. I mean, it wasn't that long ago I listened to the Spice Girls album. Oh, I could never listen to that. I was like, well. Solid record. Just putting that out there. Oh, you all right? So you know what? It wasn't for me. You know? I'm not saying it's it's not for everybody. I think it's a solid pop record. There was a couple of songs in there I thought were okay. Today was industrial. And I told him, I was like, yeah, today was industrial music. And he's like, what the hell is that? You know, try explaining industrial music to somebody that doesn't know what you're talking about. Right. Okay, so imagine it's a, it, there's like a dance beat, but it's really fast. Mm-hmm. And then someone throws a handful of washers and, and lug nuts <laughs> into a dryer and starts the dryer. That's kind of what it sounds like. Well, the, way, the way I explained it to him was what heavy metal was to rock and roll, industrial was to yeah. electronic music. Yeah. You know, you have these, like, electronic dance beats and a lot of synthesizers. Mm-hmm. But a lot of heavy, like, guitar with distortion and, like, layers of heavy bass. and Yeah, that's what I said. I go, yeah. there's a lot of distortion, and the lyrics tend to go a little darker and grittier than a pop song would. Right. So, I mean, now, you know, thanks to the 1990s, whenever you say industrial, you know, most people are going to just pick Nine Inch Nails if they were right. going to pick an industrial band. Trent Reznor and company really... Yeah, yeah really popularized that uh that well, genre i don't know if you can understate the the magnitude that trent reznor had when he put his 
first Nine Inch Nails record out, but it was ginormous. And it was a record he recorded by himself on a Mac in a hotel room or motel room or something. Yeah. And over like, some months and mixed it all himself, and it was a gigantic hit. And, like, way earlier than, like, a lot of people would think, too. Like, that album came out in, like, 88 or 89. Yeah. I think it was 89. Yep. It didn't pick up steam for a couple of years, but yep. when it did, holy cow, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it migrated out of college radio into more mainstream radio, and mm-hmm. he landed a video on MTV, which yes. went blew the doors off to the point where uh, I remember this Spin Magazine article where they called him, they, I think they had him on the cover and they called him the godfather of industrial music. And boy, did they draw some angry letters from other industrial bands that had been around for a long time. like Oh, for sure, yeah. Like Me Beat Manifesto and Front 242 and... And, yeah, and ministry, uh, yeah. ministry, yeah, and the guys from Wax Tracks. Ministry and like a thousand other bands that Al Jurgensen has had his hands in. <laughs> right. And actually, you just said who I uh, who I listened to. I listened to Front 242 oh, wow. uh, today. And Front 242 was one of those bands that I always said I needed to listen to more of. And I certainly do lis- need to listen to more of Front 242, just not all at once. Yeah, takes time. You have to ease yeah. into them. Yeah, the album that I listened to was called Front to Front. Mm-hmm. It was a little over an hour long. You know, after like 45 minutes, I was like, how much longer is this? Because it's it's a little on the repetitive side. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that industrial music has as a characteristic is that it's 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 mechanical, right? It's methodical. Yeah. It's right. If it starts with the beat is like... That's the song. That's the beat you're going to hear for the next 4.5 minutes. That's sure. what you're going to hear. Hilariously, my first real introduction to industrial was, the I think, the first day I was a DJ at WKKL. Mm-hmm. We used to get phone calls from the prison uh, <laughs> on the Cape, and they, were, they, they would call collect. So I would get a phone call that would say, this is a collect call from Virus by KMFDM. The caller is hung up. You will not be charged for this call. <laughs> so I would get those all the time. So the first call I got like that was for Virus by KMFDM, and I grabbed the 12-inch, and I threw it on and started to play it, and I had it playing at 33 RPMs. So about a minute into the song, I get another call, and it's like, you have a collect call from, play it at 45. (laughs) (laughs) Your caller has hung up. You will not be charged for this call. So I changed the speed to 45 so I could hear it, and it didn't. It didn't sound like such a dirge. But I always thought that was really funny. Yep. And I couldn't tell the difference initially between it at 33 and it at 45 because <laughs> the vocals are so distorted and buried underneath all of the various layers of clanks and bangs and smashes and bass and guitar screams and stuff. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. All right. So before we get on to our show uh, proper, I have my award-winning and always very well-received trivia question. And my trivia question is music-oriented. This is our music episode, at least for now it is. So, uh, whenever you see pictures of Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols, he is always photographed with a chain around his neck, which is clasped with a small padlock. And the reason why he always is photographed with it is because it was too tight around his neck to get it up over his head. And the person who put it around his neck did not have the key. Uh, and in the movie, Sid and Nancy, it's depicted as uh, as Nancy Spongeon that put the necklace around yep. his neck, but it was not. It was actually somebody else and somebody else well-known. So who put the bop and the bomb she bomb she bop Who put the... Collar around the uh, neck of Sid Vicious. Yeah. Who was it? I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to save it to the end of the show. Okay, so this is the week beginning September the 6th, 
And my extensive record keeping shows me that it is your turn to start. In 2020, after 19 years, the very first chord change in John Cage's composition called As Slow As Possible takes place in Halberstadt, Germany. Now, this piece of music is going to play for 639 years on the pipe organ. Uh, <laughs> it's been playing one chord for the last 19 years, up until September 6th of 2020. I'm sure yeah. John Anderson from Yes is trying to write lyrics to it. <laughs> <laughs> the composer, John Cage, is an interesting guy. He sort of falls into like the Dadaist art movement in New York and London and Paris and stuff in the 50s and, and, and 60s. He's also known for doing another piece called like Four and a Half Minutes. And okay. for that four and a half minutes, the orchestra comes out and sits down and holds their instruments for four and a half minutes. And then they get up and they, they leave the stage and they don't play anything. And it's meant to sort of build tension. It, the idea of the art is that it draws the audience's apprehension or, or anticipation of to hear music in this venue where they're expecting to hear music. And then all they hear is people sort of shifting their weight on chairs and moving their violin or viola from one leg to the other. I'm going to release a cover of that song. <laughs> There's that whole like weird art movement of, I, I think you just said Dadaism, but there's going to be another name for it where it's not so much what you're doing is genius. It's just that you're the first person to do it. Yes. Like uh, Andy Warhol has a movie called Empire, which right. is six hours long. And it's there's nothing going on in the movie. It's just a six hour long static shot of the Empire State Building. Yeah, point, like, way the to weird go. Point of, right. <laughs> well, I mean, like, there's a, an element of this that the audience has to bring something to the art, right? Yeah, so the, book to read. <laughs> but the, the point of, like, I don't know what the point of sitting through six hours of Empire is. I've never done it. I've never contemplated doing it. But um, I, I can see the, the artistic idea is that there are going to be lights that go on and off. You're going to see shadows pass across some windows, maybe. And all of those things, the audience is going to interpret as some, they're going to try and impose a plot on the imagery that they see because they know that their life isn't sort of futile. Um, and every person's experience is going to be different of what whatever those things are. Admittedly, that's an artistic long game that I got no interest in playing, but I could, I could understand how that would work. I was about to say, or Andy Warhol said, I got six hours of film here I could do, and I'm just going to point out that they call it art. There's not a lot of room for that anymore. All right, moving on to September the 7th. September the 7th, 1993, former Saturday Night Live comedian Chevy Chase makes his late-night host debut on Fox with his talk show, The Chevy Chase Show, which is canceled not even a month and a half later. <laughs> yeah, I remember when that show was on. It was on and off so fast, it might as well have been pajamas. It was yeah. terrible. Oh, yeah. It came and went so fast, it messed my hair up, right? Fox executives said it was so bad that it was embarrassing to watch. Definitely. And it jumped into a super crowded field, too, in 93. So there was, especially on late night, like on the secondary stations. So there was Chevy Chase, briefly, Arsenio Hall, Dennis Miller, plus the regular guys on ABC, CBS, and NBC, right? Right, yeah. All fighting for the same audience. Right, and Arsenio Hall, like, ruled at that point. Yeah, he was definitely large and in charge. And had the youth demographic. He had all the younger guests on. He had younger musical groups on. Was really charismatic and interesting and funny. 
And Chevy Chase is none of those things and had none of those things. No. So he would he brought on guests and like literally had nothing to talk about. They used to wind I guess they used to wind the audience up to make him really hoot and yell and stuff to try and be like the Arsenio Hall audience, but they just got rowdy and yelled over the conversations that <laughs> Chevy Chase was desperately trying to draw out of somebody like Goldie Hawn, who looks shell shocked to be on his show. You know. The only um, one I remember watching, I, I watched it. Well, you know what? I was actually a Chevy Chase fan and I was excited that he had his own talk show. The problem with Chevy Chase is he's funny. Like, if you give him something to say, he can say it funny. But he's not really quick-witted, I guess you would say. You know, yeah, he, you know, He doesn't do good with nothing right. uh, given to him. Yeah, it's a completely different kind of humor. The one episode that I watched, uh, he had Henry Rollins on. And I was, you know, a big Henry Rollins fan at that time. You know, Henry Rollins makes a living going out on stage and just talking for two hours. There's no way. There's no... You You actually have to have a particular set of skills to have right. a conversation come to a halt with Henry Rollins. But that right. is exactly what happened. And that happened with, like, almost all of his guests. He just... He had nothing to talk about. I don't know what they gave him for, like, research. So he would say, like, so you're got a movie coming out. You know, I yep. I was in a movie, and the <laughs> movies are really like I like being in film. Do you like being in films? Like it was terrible. Do you remember the old Chris Farley yes, bit on that's Saturday exactly Night Live? What it like, was like, yeah. <laughs> hey, remember Paul McCartney when you were in the Beatles? That was cool. It was <laughs> it was so much like that that it just it just couldn't couldn't survive. Yeah, he said to uh, to Rollins, he was like, "Now I, I heard this show like really into a lot of like old jazz," and Rollins like, "Yeah," and then Chevy Chase goes, "Yeah, I, li- I like that too." <laughs> it was just like that Chris Folly sketch. Just yeah. not good. Not yep. good. And like Chevy Chase, like for all the smack we're talking about his terrible talk show. Yeah. He's been somebody who I guess who's been tagged as being problematic to work with mm. anyway. So I'm sure that his natural personality probably also helped get in the way of him being successful as a talk show host. Right. I still I still like Chevy Chase, like as a comedian in movies. I think I still think he's very funny. Um but that yeah, that talk show was just it was it was bad. It was death on TV. Yeah, yeah. You could hear it. You, it was like a it was like watching a live burial. <laughs> it reminded me. You know what it reminded me of? Now that I think about it, is do you remember when David Lee Roth had it, took over for Howard Stern when Howard Stern went to the satellite radio and all the terrestrial stations that used to carry the Howard Stern show couldn't carry him anywhere? I like. I don't really remember it. I never listened to it, but I'm aware that it happened. Yeah, I listened to it. I listened to the whole run of that show, and it started out with like. He had money, he had a band, he had guests, he had, like, funny people on, and he had writers, and he had nothing to say. He was completely oblivious. Like, even with them feeding him stuff, he was unable to hold a conversation with anybody about anything that didn't involve around, like, Japanese sword shit and and Van Halen. And it was so sad because you could hear him like learning as he's kind of going on. He just wasn't learning fast enough. And by the end of the run, it was like him and his sister were the only two people on the whole staff. (laughs) And then the next week I turned in and it was gone. It was something else, some other syndicated show. I listened to that whole run. Oh, really? Which weekend was that? Yeah, exactly. It was so sad. All right, let's get on to the 8th. For September 8th, 1966, a groundbreaking television series premieres on NBC TV, and that is Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry and pitched to NBC as Wagon Train in Space. Fair enough, yeah. I notoriously went my entire life 
without ever watching a single Star Trek episode of anything ever. I think I talked about this late last year, I think. And uh, I actually went back and I watched uh, a few episodes of that original Star Trek, and I really liked it. And it's not that I, like, purposely stopped watching it. I just haven't. I've been meaning to go back and watch more. I really enjoyed it. It was definitely groundbreaking when it came on, and it set the stage for what, like, what science fiction on TV could be. Yep. Although it only ran for three seasons and was was overshadowed by Lost in Space and the impact that Lost in Space had on stuff and Batman as well. Again, Batman was a juggernaut. Yes. But Star Trek had longevity after it was canceled. Like they had a really dedicated fan base who definitely wrote a lot of letters to NBC trying to get it back on the air. And that led to like an animated Saturday morning cartoon featuring the same actors voicing their animated characters. Right, right, right. I forgot about that. And that ran for like a season or a season and a half on Saturday morning. And then Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was going to reboot the series. And then ultimately later, Star Trek The Next Generation. And then, geez, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise. Uh, Now there's Picard. Discovery and there's more Star Trek than I know what to do with. Right. Plus a bunch of movies. But it all started in that that run from '66. What's interesting about I don't know enough about you know a lot of the sequels. I don't know enough about Star Trek as a mythology to begin with. What I've seen is you know it's basically a monster of the week kind of a show. Yes. I don't know if like the later shows are like that, like Picard and stuff, are, are like that or. or is Picard more of like a long story, you know, long form storytelling like modern so TV shows are? The most recent one, Picard is a long form story told over, I think, 10 episodes. Okay. Same as Discovery is like that too. The original track, as you said, is it started out like Monster of the Week or Question of the Week or Issue of the Week or whatever, depending on whatever the episode was for the plot. They didn't all have monsters in them, yeah. for sure. But they dealt with like whatever some central plot line. And then whatever happened in that plot line never got talked about again in the subsequent plot lines. Sure. So each episode is like it had as much continuity as the monkeys. By the time they got to Star Trek The Next Generation, they'd already figured out that they could franchise some of these together. So like in the films, Star Trek II directly sequeled from Star Trek and Star Trek IV is directly sequeled from Star Trek III. So there's so there's a continuity that they started to build in and Roddenberry who was producing Star Trek The Next Generation, started to realize that. And then they started sort of tying some ideas together that would carry from episode to episode or season to season. Mm -hmm. And by the time you got to DS9, it was almost one long series. It alternated between episodic and epic in the other series right up until Discovery. It's really actually hard to find TV shows that aren't long-form storytelling now. Yeah. You know, the the, uh, the episodic or monster of the week, or however you want to phrase it, that kind of art form is almost gone, which is sad because I, I, I like to just pick up and watch an episode or something every once in a while. And you could ask the question, in fact, you should ask me the question, Jeff, why don't you watch much TV anymore? Right. Because, right, because that's why. I can't sit down and watch an episode of, I don't know, pick something, Game of Thrones. Right. Why? Because I have to watch all of the episodes that led up to this episode of Game of Thrones so I know what the hell's going on. Right. It's- Man, I don't have time for that. I have a finite lifespan. Yeah. So I don't watch any. What do, I, what do I do? I go back and I watch classic Star Trek. Yeah. I just watched The Taste of Armageddon like this week. It's yeah. my favorite episode of that whole series. Hey, you know what else you can go back and watch? September the 9th, 1967. So one year and one day after the uh, debut of Star Trek, we have the debut of George of the Jungle. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, cartoon. It was on ABC. It only ran for 17 episodes. Like, So it outran the Chevy Chase show. Yeah, like yeah. By, uh, <laughs> exponentially, yeah. It ran for 17 episodes. So it started in September. It was done by the end of the year. It was from uh, the same animators that did like Rocky and Bullwinkle and Dudley Do-Right. Yeah, same producers, Jay Ward, right? Yeah, Jay Ward is the company that put it out. Yeah, and Jay Ward, I forget the other guy's name. 
Yeah, I can't remember it either. Yep. I actually did not know George of the Jungle. I don't remember watching it as a kid. I mean, you were telling me before that it, you know, came on in the same they would show this, the episodes in the same block as like Rocky Bullwinkle, Dudley Do Right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when George of the Jungle aired on ABC, it was its own show. It had right. two other cartoons that aired with it, Tom Slick and Super Chicken, uh, both of which yeah, I've, I've never heard of them. But like my introduction to George of the Jungle was uh, Weird Al Yankovic did a cover of the theme song on his Dare to be Stupid album. Huh. Yeah. I had no idea. But And it's a brilliant cover because, of course, it, it's Weird Al who's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for this thing that only had 17 episodes, they actually made a movie out of it with Brendan Fraser. Do you remember that? Yeah, they did. The same time they made the Dudley Do-Right movie. There was a Dudley I think Do- also with Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Really? That guy, man. Yeah. That guy needs a new agent. Yeah. yeah. Poor guy. I, um, I mean, think about it. Like when the highlight of your career is working with Paulie Shore, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, he did do the right. he did the Mummy movies, but he did do the Mummy movies. And like, I mean, I don't want to yell all over Brendan Fraser. I like the guy. Yeah. He was really good in that um, movie about James Whale too. The the guy who directed um, Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, he was great in the remake of Bedazzled too. He was super funny. He was also really good in uh, in Blast from the Past. Okay, that was the one with the. Bomb shelter. Oh, okay. Blast from the past. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Blast from the past. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing posters for that. Yeah. Yeah, but George of the Jungle. I think you could probably watch all of the George of the Jungle cartoons, and less time it would take you to watch the George of the Jungle movie. Yeah, I, I bet you. I bet you could. Yeah. I remember them being all muddled together with uh, the other Jay Ward stuff as a kid when they were in syndication. But yeah, I don't remember any specific ones or the plots of any of them at all. Yeah, just yeah. I'm sure he run, runs into a tree in all of them. Watch out for that tree. Yeah. With his best friend, an ape named Ape. <laughs> All right, so what do you have for the next day? Uh, September 10th, 1947. <laughs> Mike, the miracle headless chicken. And I know that that sounds like a lot of words to describe a chicken with no head. But this chicken <laughs> lived for 18 months with no head. And eventually it choked to death. Because oh, of course it did. But... <laughs> Yes, Mike the Miracle Headless Chicken was a male, uh, I guess, rooster, technically, who had his head cut off. When the farmer cut the head off, he didn't cut clean, so he missed the jugular vein and he missed the brainstem, which was just enough brain for the chicken to stay alive and try to pluck and eat and walk around without any other sensory input than what it could, I guess, feel in its feet. Just kill the thing, for Christ's sake. Yeah, well, they didn't. The farmer's name was Olson. And he decided he felt bad, I guess, and I'm sure figured I can make some money with this chicken and fed it via an eyedropper until it <laughs> finally, it's disgusting, but finally choked to death and went off to the great, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings in the sky. <laughs> but Jesus, it's like the guy didn't want to kill the chicken because he felt bad and then he ends up killing the chicken by choking it to death, cho- by choking the chicken. <laughs> but, um,. Where, I mean, arguably cutting its head off would have been the faster way to do it. So instead, the chicken's going to go through this, like, unbelievable death throw of gasping for air. Well, let me explain why he may have been motivated to continue to keep this Mike the Headless Miracle Chicken alive. <laughs> Is, uh, imagine it's 1947, and at the height of people coming to see your headless chicken, you're earning about 4500 bucks a month. Oh. Yeah. The equivalent of $52,000 a month. Oh, he was a uh, he was a cash cow of a chicken. 
Of course, because people can't imagine that a chicken with no head would walk. I don't know, but it's before television, so right. you have to get your entertainment where you can get it, right? <laughs> like, I don't want to read any more books. So what do you want to do? I don't know. I heard there's a headless chicken three counties over. Let's go drive over and see that. Does it dance? Does it? I don't know. We'll find out. It also begs the question, is, is did he try it again? <laughs> I know. feel bad for all the roosters that came after. Like, I bet I can know I can make this work. All right, so September the 11th, 1974, the San Francisco Giants beat the New York Mets 8-6 to after what is now the longest Major League Baseball game. It lasted 23 innings, Jeff. <laughs> oh, my God. It took God. 7 hours and 23 arduous minutes. Uh, and uh, you know what? I'm going to tell you right now, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to guess that... It was probably six to six in the first <laughs> inning, and then it just hung at six to six for twenty-two more horrifyingly long innings. And that's a, that's what I'm saying is is uh, imagine the frustration if it was like a really high-scoring game. It's like okay, we're tied up six to six, and then okay, we're seven to six, and then the other team gets seven. All right, now we're tied up seven seven, and then every inning it's still tied. It's Jack yeah, or just keeps creeping up because the teams are able to equalize. Right. Did you ever, I don't know if you ever watched cricket. Cricket is I is a completely baffling game to me, and the scoring is baffling as well. But those games last like four oh, days. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the scores are like 793 to 2,576. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where that came they, from. Uh, they actually have no. cricket available on my free gaming service. And I'm like, I'm never going to figure this out. I'm interested, but I'm never going to figure this out. <laughs> I, I can't do math good enough to score keep this game. Yeah, so. And also, like, you don't watch television uh, because you can't commit that kind of a time. I'm not going to commit the time to playing cricket on PlayStation right. when I could be blowing up zombies. Yeah, right, exactly. Now, this is 1974. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I am. Isn't this the same year that had that the Tencent Beer Night riots? <laughs> it is indeed. This is a couple months after the Tencent Beer Riots in Cleveland. <laughs> but this is still, again, this is still the time when baseball is trying to figure out how it fits into the national zeitgeist. How does it stay as a national pastime? You yeah. know, it's some of it's on TV, some of it's on the radio, some of it's in person, some of it's this, some of it's that. And all the stadiums, except for the biggest stadiums, are suffering with low attendance. So I'm sure that a game at that runs seven and a half hours over 23 innings, by the time the game was over, they probably looked around and realized that there was nobody left in the stands except for one guy who fell asleep eight innings ago go with imagine being a Mets fan for that game right you're sitting around for like a work day and you're lost right uh. and you can then the Mets kind of come out of the dugout at the end to see if anybody notices and there's that one guy who's like way in the back and he's going I knew it <laughs> you suck <laughs> where's my 10 cent beer <laughs> hooray I'm for the other team I mean, I've watched log baseball games before on TV, and if all you're doing them. it with somebody and yeah, all of them, the the yes albums of sports. <laughs> um, but if you're doing it with somebody that you like talk to, it's easy enough to have a conversation in between right. the five minutes. Sometimes it takes between something going on. But if you're just sitting there by yourself, man, oh, it's a, it can be a slog. I think we can all learn a lesson from soccer, and maybe a zero-zero tie isn't such a bad idea. Right, exactly. We got now we go into sudden death overtime. Yep. Also, something that might have almost happened at Tencent Beer Night. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up the week on the 12th. September 12th, 1966. Good year for TV, apparently, because that is the premiere of The Monkees on NBC. Hey, hey. It's The Monkees. Yeah. People think they monkey around. The Monkees was super groundbreaking, although it seems goofy to look back at it now as if it's no big deal. But it was a band built by TV executives and music producers specifically to sell a TV show. 
Right. And outgrew the TV show, but didn't outgrow the TV show right away. And the two surviving monkeys are still touring. Yeah. We're touring up to, right up through the summer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The monkeys, we've had this discussion before where you and I actually prefer the monkeys over the Beatles. I know. It's. I say that and I. We have so much Beatles stuff on yeah. the show. I'm like, not, and I'm not saying that the monkeys are more talented than the than the Beatles. No, that, it's that would a, be it's a, an enjoyment. That would be a right. stupid and asinine statement to yes. make. I'm just saying that I I like a lot more monkey stuff than I like Beatles stuff sometimes. What when, when I when I go to put a record on, not if given the choice between even Volver, which is my favorite Beatles record, yeah. I'm probably gonna pick up Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones and put that on instead because I don't have to think too hard about it. Yeah, it's fun pop yep, music, fun right? Pop music. Yep. Just like uh, the Spice I'm, Girls, Bill. Except they're yeah. all boys. <laughs> I think Headquarters was probably my favorite like album from the Monkees. That was the first album that they did as a band. Right. They played most of their own stuff. They played almost all. I think they played on almost all the tracks, and they wrote more than half of them. Yeah, the Monkees only ran for I think three seasons. Yeah, they got pulled. You know, whatever. Whenever it ran in syndication, because they didn't have a lot of episodes to like fill up. You know, a time slot for the year. Right. They would only come on in the summertime. Yeah. Yep. It would come on the local, my local UHF affiliate, uh, Channel 56. Yep. It would come on, I think, at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Monday through Friday during the summer. Mm-hmm. And it's yep. funny because like uh, that same syndication schedule is how they ran Star Trek because it has about the same number of episodes, like 70-something episodes. So it right. would only run in the summertime on sh- like Channel 6 at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Monday through Friday. Right. Just enough to run yep. through the summer. I'm not one of those people to like romanticize about, oh, those were the days. But that was something that actually made summers. Yeah. Yep. It's like, oh, oh, we're going to go watch the monkeys. Yeah. You know? And it was something that like, I mean, all my friends watched it and I watched it too. There was like a common reference point for discussion with us. I guess it's the same way that kids are today with Game of Thrones and whatever. But like, it was like I had friends that watched Benny Hill. So we could talk about Benny Hill. You know, even though we'd all seen the same episodes of Benny Hill every bloody day for two years or Doctor Who or whatever. But like the monkeys was something that it just everybody watched. It was the kids show. I'm saying the kids show with my air quotes here. But it was on and everybody, everybody watched it. And the music uh, is still on oldies radio and stuff. And yeah, well, yeah, it was solid music for sure. They had some of the best songwriters, you know, working for them. My godchild, when she was, you know, really little, she was super into this Disney show slash, I don't want to say band, it was more of a group, called Big Time Rush. You familiar? Yes. I sat down and I watched it with her because she was, it was, you know, I was staying with them for a week down in Florida and she was super into it and she was all talking about it. I was like, well, show it to me. I want to see this. And I watched Big Time Rush with her and I was like, I have to show you the monkeys because this is... It's the same formula. It was the same show. And matter of fact, they even used a lot of the like cartoonish like sound effects. Yes. Like the boing, 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 boing yep. noises and stuff like that. Yep. My kids were, that wasn't on when they were little, but my like nieces and nephews and stuff were little right. kids when that show was on. And I know it from them. So yeah. So 20 years later, there's going to be some other show and my godchild is going to be like, oh my God, this is just like big time rush. Lame. <laughs> It'll be some, some music show. I'm sure. I mean, they, they made a second monkeys. It did not oh, last. the new monkeys, yeah, the new monkeys. monkeys. Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually, you can actually watch episodes of that. I was trying to like tra- trace it down. There's actually episodes available on YouTube. All right, let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. So September the 6th, 1879. Ooh, a youngin. Your friend and mine, Max Shrek. Ah. 
So Max Schreck uh, would be more familiar to people as the original vampire yeah. from the movie Nosferatu, the silent German film. Yep, F.W. Murnau's ripoff of, of Bram Stoker's Dracula that Bram Stoker sued him for, and he was ordered to destroy all the copies, and he didn't. But yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, what had happened was, like, the director wanted to make a movie out of the book of Bram Stoker's Dracula, yeah. and they said, nah, no. And he was like, well, okay, I'll just make it anyway and change all the names around. Yep, that's pretty much what happened, and they, they were yeah. like, no, you can't do that. That's You know what? That's still a cream-filled thing. That's a Twinkie. You can call it yeah. uh, whatever, <laughs> but it's still a Twinkie. You know? But he didn't destroy them, and copies were already out and stuff. Oh yeah, um, I, I I own like three copies myself because it's not it's not uh, it's in the public domain. Yeah, is it my all time favorite Halloween movie? It might very well be. I've watched it every Halloween for something like eighteen years. I watch it. Oh wow! Yeah, I love it. It's one of those weird ones that I, I always 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 enjoy it. it. It was remade. Well, I mean, not Shrek wasn't in it, but it was remade yeah. in like the seventies by Warner Herzog, which is really good too. If you ever yeah. Really didn't want to watch uh, it. And real quick, Max Shrek was like probably one of the first like method actors. Mm-hmm. Like everybody on the set was terrified of that guy because he was kind of like living as Orlock. Yeah. During the filming. All right. Next up, September the seventh. Who do you got? September seventh, nineteen twenty-six. A paranormal investigator named Ed Warren is born. A bullshit artist. <laughs> <laughs> My God, this house is so creaky. It must be haunted. He's he's most well known, I guess, for being the guy that investigated the Amityville house from the Amityville horror baloney that the family perpetrated Lutzes. on the world. The Lutzes, yeah, yeah. yeah um, they, him, and his wife Lorraine did a lot of quote unquote paranormal investigations. That was a grift that lasted like forever. There's yeah. a series of movies, The Conjuring movies, are about those two. Mm. They're also famous for the Annabelle doll, which was not a creepy doll like in the movies. It's actually a Raggedy Ann doll. Uh, Lorraine Warren and and Ed, you know, they were a married couple. They did all sorts of paranormal investigations, yada, yada. They they never found a ghost they didn't look for. Uh, (laughs) That's a great description. (laughs) Yeah. Ed died long before Lorraine did. She only died like last year, the year before. For years, they had at her house this, you know, um, supernatural or whatever it was called, demonology museum, which was just like a couple of rooms in her cellar with a bunch of, you know, collectibles and stuff like that. And it was such a freaking ruse because I know a few people that went there and they all had the same story. You would get there and their their son would greet you and said, uh, Lorraine's not feeling well. And she doesn't like coming down here in, in, on a good day because of vi- uh, the vibrations and the energies are just too much and it gives her really bad headaches. And then after you're down there for about 10 or 15 minutes, she like shows up as if, you know, to make you feel special that right. she actually was there. But everybody I know that went there and I know a few people all told me the exact same story. It was such uh-huh. a, a, a grift, yeah. One person's yeah. grift is another person's like, I know a gimmick to get him in here. Not all that long ago, maybe about five years ago, one of the sons from the Amityville Horror, Danny Lutz, came forward with a, a documentary called My Amityville Horror. And he, per, you know, he continued on perpetuating the lie that his father told mm-hmm. or his stepfather told. But in one scene, they actually go to visit with Lorraine Warren. And that woman is cuckoo bananas, dude. She has like chickens like walking around her kitchen and stuff. 
And at one point, she like pulls out this like cigarette case. You know the 1970s leather yeah. cases yeah. and stuff like that. Pulls out this like cigarette case and then produces like a couple of slivers of wood. And she's saying that it's it's from the true cross. That was from the cross that Jesus was crucified on. Mm-hmm. And Danny Letts is like kissing the wood and stuff like that. And I'm like, look, if if such a thing actually really existed. <laughs> It would be in the Vatican. It wouldn't be in a small house in Western Connecticut, you right. crazy bitch. Yeah, a bunch of chick- <laughs> chickens guarding it. All right, but that's a, that's the Ed, Ed Warren. Rest in uh, rest in wherever you are. There you go. All right, whenever the, the like the Warrens like get to the afterlife, if all the demons are like waiting for him, like you're on our turf now, bitch. Nah, it'll, it'll be Houdini. <laughs> <laughs> Houdini and the amazing amazing Randy going like yeah, the well, amazing Randy. You got right. me. All right. <laughs> All right. So moving on to September the 8th, Willie Tyler. Uh, he was born in 1940. Now, Willie Tyler was an American comedian and ventriloquist. Yeah. His heyday came like a lot of ventriloquists uh, in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. He was uh, an African-American performer with a African-American puppet named Lester. Yeah. He guest starred, I think, on every single variety show. Ever. Yes. Yep. He was he on was- all of them. Yeah. yeah, he was super famous at that time, yeah. I saw him so many times that I hear his name be like, oh, good. <laughs> like, yeah, Sonny yeah. and Cher is going to be great this week because Willie Tyler <laughs> and Lester are on, you know? Yep. And he worked clean. Yep. He worked clean. There was some, you know, ventriloquists that, you know, you'd see him on TV like um, Waylon Flowers, Flowers with Madam. Ma- yeah. yeah. you see him on TV and they were they were funny or whatever. And then you would see their, like, Las Vegas show and they're, like, Madam's over there swearing up a storm. And you're like, oh, right. my God, what? Right. But Willie Tyler always worked clean, yeah. He was a lot of fun to watch. He's still still working today, believe it or oh, not. Wow. He's still he's no yeah, he's still out there. He doesn't come I guess he doesn't do a lot, but he's come out for like cultural stuff and he got oh, some sure. awards for his long life in the entertainment industry and Oh yeah, the guy's eighty something years old yeah. here. Yeah. So gotta love the guy. Thank you for making my childhood that much funnier. Thank you, Willie. All right, next up on the ninth. September 9th, nineteen fifty four, B movie genre actor Jeffrey Combs is born in Oxnard, California. Mm. If you don't recognize his name, and you might not, if you've seen any Charles Band films, which like are d- d- directed to VHS specials from the 80s and 90s, you'll know him from films like Reanimator or From Beyond. He also guest starred on a bunch of Star Trek episodes, has been in and out of genre film and TV for since Reanimator came out. I think that was his first like bigger film. I love Reanimator. That movie's fantastic. Based on an H.P. Lovecraft story, if I'm not mistaken. It, it, you are correct. And the rare case where the film is better than the story, the film was really good and well, tightly plotted and fun. And the yeah. story is stretched out over 900 million pages um, and is less fun. And Barbara Crampton isn't in the book. <laughs> Barbara Crampton is not in the book. She, I, she's not in that one. She's in From Beyond, right? No, no. She, she, no, oh, Barbara Crampton. She, yeah, she's the uh, the naked girl in, oh, in yeah. Reanimator. Gets yeah. the... To the doctor's yes, head that's, that's disconnected. That's exactly what she gets, Jeff. Yes. <laughs> she was also in From Beyond, which is based on another H.P. Lovecraft story. And she was in Chopping Mall. Next up on the 10th, 1950, guitar player extraordinaire from Aerosmith, Joe Perry. Yeah. Born in Lawrence, Mass. Definitely should be talked about among the greats of 70s guitar rock guitarists, but mm-hmm. gen- maybe it's because he still plays out, but you don't hear people talk about Jimmy Page and they talk about Clapton in the 70s and they talk about, but like, I think that Joe Perry was right up there with those guys amongst yeah. the guitar gods. Yeah. I actually have an experience with Joe Perry. 
Do you really? Uh, yeah, I do. I work for a renaissance fair uh, in Carver, Massachusetts. I work for the King Richard's Fair. I work in the gaming uh, section. And that particular year, I was running uh, a pillow fight game. Now, usually people come over and they fight each other. But if somebody just wants to play like a little kid, they'd have to fight me. You know, and I put on a big show for him and I let them win. So this kid comes over and he's with this older dude. And this dude is dressed up like somebody who thinks they're a rock star. And <laughs> like they got the black jeans, the yeah. black button down shirt, the right. boots and the leather vest. Yeah. And then the kid comes over and he wants to play the game. And then the grandfather, or I guess, comes over and hands me the money. And I look right at him and I'm like, oh, jeez, that's Joe Perry. Um, I mean, Joe Perry and Steve Tyler, I guess the, everybody in Aerosmith still live in the area, you know, or, or at least have a property in the area. Right. Yeah, Joe Perry and Steve Tyler have both been spotted at King Richard's Fair fairly often. Wow, that's super funny. And yeah. if if you run into Steven Tyler, like remember, you're not looking for like a lithe '70s rock and roller. You're looking for like somebody's aunt, somebody's cool grandmother. Yeah, somebody's cool grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. If you see Steven Tyler, you tell him I said. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right. Next up, uh, September 11th, 1940, film director Brian De Palma. Um, oh wow. Probably best known for Dressed to Kill and Body Double and Blowout, among some other films. But you he always was, do this. You always say, best known for, and then you say a bunch of movies that nobody, I'm not going to say nobody knows, but right. you're overlooking Carrie. I am that's, overlooking Carrie, That's yes. probably what he's best known for. He's probably, well, I don't know. <laughs> that was the first thing he did. That was thought of uh, kind of like as like a, like a second generation Hitchcock, because his crime films especially were right. very Hitchcockian. And I've gone, I have the Blu-ray of Dressed to Kill, and I have the Blu-ray of Body Double that I've watched both of a couple times. Body um, Double's fantastic, yeah. Well, you know, I noticed this, those movies are grungy. They're gritty and grungy, and, oh, and yeah. I watch them and I'm like, Ugh, I feel like I should have like a hand sanitizer, <laughs> you know, to just to rub my hands as I'm watching it because they're so earthy, and but they're great. Yeah. I, and, I love them, but and like he, they make me feel icky when I watch them. So. Yeah, he also did the first Mission Impossible movie, yep. Scarface, and The Untouchables. So, all right, and wrapping up the birthdays, September the 12th, 1952. We just talked about his compadre the last week of the week before. Neil Peart. Yeah, yeah, Neil Peart, uh, the drummer from Rush. Yeah. And we'll say just the, just the opposite of what we said about Alex Lifeson, or we'll word it opposite. Man, when you're the most talented person in Rush, that is saying a lot. <laughs> yes. I'm going to guess if anybody you know likes Rush at all, we'll also know that he wrote 99% of the lyrics as well. Yes, he did. He was very literate, I guess. He was a, he was a, a voracious reader as well as a ferocious drummer. See that one I did there? Yep. And uh, and carried a lot of the ideas and stuff that he read about into the themes and stuff that were captured in Rush's songs and, and albums. I happened to see them, geez, I can't remember when. It was before my son was born, so 20 years ago, mm-hmm. here in Manchester, and it was fantastic to watch him play. Years ago, though, there was a... Uh a con like a radio contest or whatever and th- these two old portuguese women at work won tickets to go see rush <laughs> my friend jamie and i were like trying to convince them to give us the tickets because 
you're not gonna enjoy yourself, you know. Oh, Maria, what's your favorite song they do? Yeah. Uh, my favorite song they do is the Subdivisions. <laughs> yeah. I like the red bachata. <laughs> so, but they went and it pissed yeah. us off because we wanted to go. But they went and whenever she came back to work, I was like, so what did you think? She's like, I didn't know what to think. I've never heard music like that before in my life. It's like, yeah, because all you know is the freaking chicken dance. <laughs> she said whenever the, he did the drum solo, you know, what, what he calls rhythm method. Yeah. She's like, I just sat there with like my eyes and mouth open for the whole time. She's like, I've never seen anybody play right. drums like that in my life. She goes like, that was, that was incredible. She's like, do I, did I enjoy the music? What, am I going to buy any of their uh, CDs? Probably not. But watching that guy play drums was amazing. They turn music into art while other people turn art into <laughs> the worst song ever. All right, young Jeff. Yes, sir. What do we have for our contender for the worst song ever this week? <laughs> the worst song ever this week, Bill, comes to us from 1986 from a guy named Jermaine Stewart. And oh. the song, you know this song, Bill, because you well, know that name. Yes. And you know that we don't have to take our clothes off to have a good time. Oh, no. And that's that's what this song teaches us. Apparently. Yeah, and like the next line in that song is you know, saying something about drinking cherry wine. And have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just tell you from experience, wine makes your clothes fall off. It's funny. <laughs> and cherry wine is bad. Any wine with other fruit in it that's not grape is terrible for you. That's like drinking Ripple. It's not good. Yeah. Jermaine Stewart's an interesting guy. This was his only hit. He did another song that charted but didn't chart anywhere near as high as this called Jody, which is a song about Jody Watley. Right. I don't know if you remember Jody Watley. What happened was he was like a backup singer for a, you know like a few things. He did some work with uh, with Culture Club, actually. Yep. And he was a dancer on Soul Train and stuff like that. Yep. Some of the producers wanted to make a band, a band called Shalimar. Shalimar. Remember yeah. them? Yep. And and he auditioned with a couple of his friends, and like everybody made it into Shalimar except for him. And actually, right. Jody Watley was one of them. Right. They were they've been friends since they were teenagers in Columbus, Ohio. Right. All right. So uh, before we go on to more about Jermaine Stewart, let's just play the clip of this smoker of a song here. Yes. Just like you, give me conversations, good vibrations through and through. So come on. The thing is, with, you know, the, the time frame and all that of this song is, you know, the, the it's like, we don't have to take our clothes off. Everybody I know that heard this song was like saying, well, you can drink your cherry wine. I'm going to go get <laughs> naked, you know? <laughs> yes. Like, this is a song that sort of falls into, into 80s pop, where 80s pop didn't know it was in the middle of this big flux. So they still have to like hold on to older audiences. They still have to draw in newer audiences. This is the time when like Janet Jackson is starting to get really popular. Yep. Lionel Richie is starting to wane because he's aging kind of out of that demographic. So there's all these people like Terrence Trent Darby and early Prince and other stuff that's starting to make waves in the United States right on the charts here. 
Right. Jermaine Stewart is one of them. And you get this song written by uh, Narada Michael Walden. I don't know who that guy is, but that's who wrote it. And it plays 800 million thousand times a day for like a year. It falls in and how this song starts to sort of differentiate itself from all that chaff is that this is a message song. So this is 86 is like, it's not the height of the AIDS epidemic, but it's when the AIDS epidemic has is in the mainstream consciousness enough that it's in the news and it's talked about and there are conversations about what to do. And, and this is a song about abstinence, not specifically to prevent the transmission of the AIDS virus, but as a way to help reduce the spread of AIDS among people. And because it's a message song, it's played relentlessly. Like in between all the just saying no to drugs uh psas right right at the same time like you know this is when the government was paying for very special episodes of stuff like alf (laughs) like anti-drug episodes of alf or whatever so again this sort of message stuff is is a big deal and the fact that the next song that he put out that he wrote himself jody didn't chart well and his next album didn't chart at all and his next album never came out he actually had another like song and much like we were talking about with great white did once bitten twice shy and it was such a such a hit for them that they actually wrote their next song that sounded like it one of his follow-up singles was called don't talk dirty to me right it's like this guy was really banging that abstinence only drum i guess he faded out of public consciousness very quickly and never made it back in he was working on his fourth album when he died from liver cancer brought on by aids Right. So he ended up a victim of his own, not a victim of his own success or anything, but like, yeah, the, ironically. Yeah, the yeah. the irony of that is not lost on me. That's that's for sure. Uh, right. Really sad about his death, too. Not that any deaths aren't sad, but really sad about his death was his burial site didn't have a gravestone or even a grave marker for 17 years. Yeah. Yeah, his mother that finally, sucks. yeah, his mother finally got one together in 2014. That's, that sucks. And, yeah. you know, you think that, like, the legacy that he had with Soul Train and Jody Watley and stuff that, and Shalimar, because he toured with Shalimar and that, that they could have, you know, come together and done something. But again, I'm not part of that conversation. It's yeah. it's disappointing. Focusing on the song itself, yeah. the song is horrendously overproduced and it is unnecessarily jaunty for a song about not having sex with people. Right. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It sort of falls into that category of like, do you remember the band New Shoes? Yes. So remember how irritating New Shoes were when you'd hear like, yes. I hate that song so much. Yeah. And this song just is like a big Venn diagram of things that I don't like about 80s pop music. <laughs> and it's that like overly synthesized. Everything is electronic. It's super duper layered. So it can't ever be played live without a 9 million people or a lot of computers. Or a back, or yeah, backing track. Yeah. And it's just meant to be a music video song. Yeah. And this is definitely one of those. Also, the video is completely, it, it looks exactly like any, like Millie Vanilli video. You can't tell them apart. Yeah. I was about um, to say, it kind of looks like the Terrence Trent Darby video for Wishing Well. It's almost, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. It's like the same wardrobe department, right? Yeah. It's like whatever you do, those uh, green screen videos at the carnival that all look the same. Yes, that's that's what it is. Yes, probably the same director and everything. Right, right, right. All right, we're going to bring the smoke machine over here on the left, and we're going to have the three dancers behind you there. We're going to have some curtains blown in the background, and cue the track, you know. All right, so uh, before we wrap up the show, I had my question for you. Yes. Are we going to make it three weeks in a row? Let's see. I 
I think so. All right. So the the question was, who put the chain and the lock around Sid Vicious's neck? Yes. And because in the Sid and Nancy movie, it showed it as Nancy Spungen. Right. We know that that's not the, the actual fact of the matter. No. Who was it? And I I am pretty certain that the the person who put that chain and lock around Sid Vicious's neck was none other than Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. Yes, it was three yeah. in a row. Three in a row. I, and I'm pretty sure I saw that in one of the documentaries about the Sex Pistols a few months ago. So uh, she actually had a birthday this week. Her birthday was September the seventh. She was born in 19, oh, right, 1954. Yeah. I have no idea what that woman's eyebrows look like, nor do I want to. <laughs> She's definitely a bangs enthusiast. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you next week, guys. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. And better yet, Throw us a ranking over at the Apple Podcast app, a five-star ranking.